You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, teacher and mom. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is April 24th, 2022, and this is episode 170 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear an interview with Barry Hawkins, who spent nearly two decades as a lighthouse keeper in England. Barry is also a very accomplished artist. First, Michelle, has anything interesting happened on the state in lighthouse history? Yes, Jeremy. On April 24th, 1905, Point No Point Lighthouse in Maryland was first lighted. It's a cast iron lighthouse on top of a cylindrical cast iron caisson. Construction began in the spring of 1902. On April 3rd, there was an accident when a pier collapsed and the iron caisson floated down the Chesapeake Bay in gale force winds. The caisson was eventually recovered 40 miles south of the Rappahannock River. It was repaired and placed in its correct position the following year. The federal government put the lighthouse up for auction in 2006, but the auction was suspended when it was realized that the lighthouse serves as a boundary marker for the Navy's aerial firing range and target area. The status of the lighthouse remains in limbo and is reported to be in poor condition. Point No Point Lighthouse in Maryland is not to be confused with Point No Point Lighthouse in Washington State, which is the headquarters of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. So, Michelle, please help me tell everyone about today's guest, Barry Hawkins. Sure, Jeremy. Barry Hawkins worked as a lighthouse keeper for England's Trinity House from 1978 to 1996. His assignments included some of the most remote and rugged light stations in the UK. He took advantage of his spare time at the lighthouses, painting pictures of seascapes, wildlife, and other subjects. His first 18 months of service were spent as a supernumerary keeper at various lighthouses on the west coast of England. For each of these temporary jobs, Barry would load up his painting equipment, jump on his trusty motorcycle, and set off from his home to the lighthouse in question. The first station he was sent to was Strumblehead Lighthouse in Wales, where he arrived in a howling gale. He was later posted permanently to the notorious Wolf Rock Lighthouse, located 8 miles southwest of Land's End in Cornwall, then to Scarry's Lighthouse off the northwestern tip of Wales. Barry spent a brief time at Europa Point Lighthouse in Gibraltar. His final posting was at St. Anne's Head Lighthouse off the entrance to Milford, Haven Sound. Barry is a self-taught artist. Over the years, he has created a variety of watercolors, as well as pen and ink and pencil drawings. His many awards include two first prizes from the Marine Society of London, He's exhibited and sold work across the UK, including at Trinity House, the Royal Society of Marine Artists at the Mall Galleries, King George's Fund for Sailors Exhibitions, the General Trading Company, and Liberties of London. Barry is also a member of the Clifton Arts Club, and he continues to paint and illustrate from his home in Bristol, where he lives with his wife and family. I spoke with Barry recently via Zoom. Let's listen to that conversation now. Speaking today with Barry Hawkins, former lighthouse keeper in England and award-winning artist. Barry is at his home in Bristol, England. I'm over here uh, across the pond in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we're speaking through the magic of Zoom. And uh, Barry told me this is his first Zoom call. I'm glad uh, he's able to join me today. Thank you so much for being with me today, Barry. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's um. It's an exciting prospect that I've been uh, looking forward to for quite a while since we got in touch through uh, um, the Association of Lighthouse Keepers in, in the UK, which um, with Neil Hargreaves, our, um, our president, is very popular and has many members, including those uh, across the world. Yes. So if, uh, anytime you feel like joining the Association of <laughs> Lighthouse Keepers, you'll be most welcome. Well, and that goes for all our listeners. I, I have to admit, I'm probably not an upstanding member at the moment. I have been a member in the past and have many issues of the, the magazine. LAMP, right, is the, the name That's of the right. magazine? Yeah, yeah, excellent magazine. And Neil Hargreaves, I interviewed for this podcast a while back and has been extremely helpful, put me in touch with you and also David Appleby, who I just interviewed. So 
Uh, it's a Very real, good. real pleasure talking to uh, to all of you. I always really enjoy this, and I'm very interested in your art as well as your lighthouse keeping. I believe your career as an artist uh, predates your career as a lighthouse keeper, if I have that right. How did your art career begin? The interest in art and painting began at school in primary schools. The um, the the subject was my favourite subject, and it was carried on through secondary school as well. I did well in the O levels that we have here and then um, and, and had a grade one in that. And I also prior to the O levels won a, which I suppose in some ways gave me a bit of bit more of a uh, of an impetus. I won a an art competition for the year that I was in at school. I think it was about 1967, sort of about the fourth year, something like that. Uh, I forget what they call that these days, but um, it was run by uh, an English tea company, Brook Bond which um, you might well have heard of, and I came first in that. So these, mm. these sort of encouragements were, were there, and I decided that I would like to go on and do fine art uh, A-levels and, and afterwards uh, at uni or um, at college, as they call it then, uh, art college. But unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't really allowed to. I was also quite good at science subjects and ended up going down that road and trying to become a civil engineer. Um, I gave up with that after a while, a year at uni, and uh, mm -hmm. went off to teach myself some more about painting in watercolours. And that's how it all started. And I don't do quite as much now as I used to, but I'm still painting. Yeah. And I still have work on show. Well, that's great. We'll we'll talk more about your uh, your art as well as your lighthouse keeping. But let's uh, move on to the beginning of your lighthouse keeping career. What led you in the first place to become a lighthouse keeper? So when I couldn't get into fine art college and I went to uh, uni to do civil engineering, a year year later, I uh, I thought I would try and change courses, but I couldn't do that. And they said I had to uh, wait till I was 25 or um, live independently for three years uh, if I wanted to take up fine art at a, at a degree level or college level. So um, I went out to West Wales to stay with some friends. And whilst I was out there, I met a keeper who was working on Lundy South in the Bristol Channel. Mm -hmm. uh, he lived nearby and uh, I met him and we talked and that was it. I was smitten then. I decided that that was what I wanted to do. It offered me um, a real uh, a real opportunity to earn some money. And also it gave me 28 days on the lighthouses and then 28 days off, which was perfect for my artwork. You pointed me to an interview you did uh, online, and uh, it was fun watching that. And one of the things I was impressed with in that interview is, uh, I think the, the interviewer asked, what is Trinity House? Of course, a lot of our listeners are real lighthouse buffs and are familiar with Trinity House, but I'm sure there are some listeners who aren't uh, familiar with it. Trinity House is uh, the lighthouse authority in the UK, and who you, that's who you worked for for quite a few years. But could you just maybe say a little bit more background about what is uh, Trinity yeah, House? Sure. It's the um, it's the general lighthouse authority for um, England, Wales, the Channel Islands, and Gibraltar, and mm -hmm. was set up by Henry VIII. He wanted to light the Thames from its uh, its mouth out in the um, English Channel up to the Pool of London or up to the Tower of London. And the headquarters at the Tower Hill, just behind the Tower of London, and that is Trinity House itself. Trinity House Lighthouse Authority are the main organisation that uh, deliver a, a reliable, efficient and cost-effective aids to navigation and service also for the benefit of safety of all seafarers. They're all part of an, another group, such as the General Lighthouse Authority, uh, that includes the Northern Lights Board and the um, Irish Lights right. Association. And they also belong to or are part of the Marine and Coast Guard Agency and the UK Hydrographic Office. Mm -hmm. They are also a school or um, uh, uh, they do an awful lot with education for um, sea, seafarers and uh, provide the support and welfare for the seafaring community uh, as a whole. Their principal job, though, is to deliver um, aids to navigation and safety of all for the safety of all mariners. Right, and that that mission continues uh, with uh, yes. automated lights today. That's right. Uh, so, uh, like all keepers for uh, Trinity House in England, 
you spent the first part of your career as a supernumerary keeper. That's not a term we use here, but it's my understanding. It's kind of like being an apprentice keeper, learning the trade at, at various lighthouses. Uh, right. When you remember that period, what stands out for you? The main thing that stood out for me or stands out for me still to that, when I think back about that period was the, um, the novelty, the variety of, of, of the lighthouses that I went to from the very first to the very last, basically. I was based on the west coast of Wales, uh, the Swansea district, and their lighthouse district stretched from um, North Devon, Heartland Point, including Lundy, uh, in the in in the Bristol Channel, and then that went up the west coast as far as St. Bees in Cumbria, and the supernumerary period was designed to visit various lighthouses, in, you know, filling in for vacancies that were there through either sickness or vice or whatever, and then gain experience. And the whole period, although it was disjointed, I found very exciting. Some of the lighthouses were quite difficult to get to, and some were on land. It depended where they wanted you to go. The first one I went to was Strumble Head Lighthouse, which was outside of um, Fishguard on the ferry route from um, West Wales across to uh, Southern Ireland, Rosslare. And I was able, because it was on the land, to, uh, to motorcycle there, which was uh, a great asset on a day off. But when you were sent out offshore to a, a tower rock, like the Smalls Lighthouse, which I went to quite a few times, um, you were incarcerated in a chimney, basically. <laughs> and um, that can be can, could be quite difficult for some people, but I took to it. And I'm providing, and they were, the crew that you were with, the other two keepers that you were with were, were, you know, you were all getting along. Then the time went quite quickly and it was quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, Smalls is one of the, is, I believe it's considered the most isolated Trinity House lighthouse, the farthest offshore. Uh, that must have been quite an experience. And you mentioned people getting along. I think the Smalls has a famous historic incident where two keepers, uh, one keeper died and the other one tried to preserve his body. And it's, uh, I don't know if you know that kind of macabre story. Prior to that incident, all lighthouses were um, double manned. The, 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 the introduction of a third keeper came in after that. Mm-hmm. The uh, the keeper that was that survived the incident, well, the illness that, that his friend, colleague, had, uh, had had caught um, didn't want to go ashore without a body. He could he could have committed him to the deep there and then, but he kept him because they had a reputation. These two keepers for arguing a lot on the mainland, and everybody knew it in the community where they lived, which was which you know was was uh, in West Wales, and um, so therefore he decided to put the chap his body in canvas and then strap him to the outer railings around the gallery but unfortunately the weather turned so bad he didn't get they didn't get didn't get help actually or even attract any help for quite a few weeks and then it was months before they could get a boat out there to him and in the process the poor chap lost his mind Mm -hmm. yeah i think uh one of the things that that inspired was the the american movie a couple of years ago called the lighthouse the story was quite different but the uh, writer director said uh, that story inspired him so being a young lighthouse keeper uh, and uh, experiencing a place like that, what, what were your first impressions uh, of uh, the smalls? What was that like? How small it was. <laughs> to use, <laughs> yeah. to use a, not, not, necess- not, not generally to make a pun, but uh, yes, indeed, it, it was. And um, a lot of steps, if I remember rightly, a lot of stairs to go up and down. But I was young and... Um, I think the other thing that stuck and was probably the worst thing about living on those um, tower rocks was the amount of condensation that formed inside them. If he went out there in the winter time and a warm front came through, then the lighthouse used to sweat on the inside. And uh, it would be the same as, as, as getting uh, condensation on the window panes in the winter time before they had double glazing in houses. It became a bit of a nuisance, actually. It was quite damp. I remember that. And I also remember being um, somewhat surprised by the lack of toilet facilities. Uh, washing was done in a bowl in the kitchen in the middle of the night when the other two keepers were in bed using uh, rainwater that had been collected. And um, the loo was the infamous bucket and chuck it variety. There had been, and there is talk that the Smalls Lighthouse was the first lighthouse to have a flushing loo on it. But when I was out there, it all rusted up solid. And so it never flushed when I, whenever I went there. 
Now, in the interview I saw with you, you mentioned something uh, about uh, something that happened in 1979. I actually interviewed an Irish lighthouse keeper named Gerald Butler some time ago, who was stationed at the Fastnet Lighthouse in Ireland okay. uh, in 79 and saw up close the uh, what was is, is now often referred to as the Fastnet disaster. Of course, every year they have the the yacht race, one of the, the best known yacht races in the world uh, that goes, I believe, from Plymouth, England and circles around Fastnet Lighthouses in part of the race. And uh, uh, it was a terrible disaster that year uh, where a number of the uh, the yachts uh, capsized in, in a squall and so forth. And now you were you saw some of that, I believe, uh, some of the boats. Uh, but where were you stationed at that time? I was on, I was on the smalls. Um... Mm-hmm. That, that year, that month, August, August 79. And the weather was terrible at the time, but we heard about it unfolding on the radio. Yeah, 300 boats took place in, in, in that race. And they, they, they raced from cows out to the fast net via the Sillies and back. And all in all, I discovered there were 12,500 sailors taking part. Wow. And at the end of the um, at the end of the disaster, there were 19 souls lost, which is quite a number, really, considering the day and age and everything. But yeah, this fierce storm came up um, from the southwest, and the winds were really strong. The swell was high, and the yachts, a lot of them, were dismasted because they were broadside onto it. But the majority of those that had had the go about it and weren't able to get into shelter down on the on the Cornish coast or the Scillies headed north and up through the up St. George's Channel uh, into the Irish Sea. And as, as you said, quite rightly, Jeremy, the, the Smalls is quite some distance out. The furthest of Trinity House's lighthouses out at sea, I think it's um, 19 nautical miles or something like that, 20 miles nearly. But anyway, um, whilst we were out there, we saw a few of them, a few of the yachts coming by, uh, still running before the wind. and. Um, Trying to get into uh, in, in, into a safe port, but that was about it. They were there weren't any that were the, that close that you know you could you could offer any assistance to them, but all you could do was watch them and hope that they carried on and report them to the coast guards that there was one heading north. You know, yes, it was it was quite a shock that. Yeah, uh, if people are interested in hearing more about this, I would refer to them to the. The episode of this podcast I did with actually it was th- I divided into three parts with Gerald Butler, but uh, I think it was the second part where he goes into great detail about being at Fastnet Lighthouse uh, during that, and quite a few people were rescued, I believe, from by uh, volunteer lifesavers from the area. So moving on, uh, after your uh, time as a supernumerary keeper, uh, I think it was your first assignment as an assistant keeper uh, at Wolf Rock. Uh, do That's I have right. that right? Was that that was the first place where you were an assistant keeper, and right. uh, I believe you were at Wolf Rock for about three years. Similar to the the smalls here in this country, we refer to this the type of tower sometimes as a wave swept lighthouse or a sea swept lighthouse. Of course, uh, they're considered rock lighthouses. Uh, That's right in England. And Wolf Rock is a granite tower several miles offshore from Cornwall in southwestern England. Uh, certainly one of the most famous of its type, I would say. How many keepers were assigned to Wolf Rock when you were there? And how many days were you on and how many days off? As all lighthouses on offshore and that, there were three keepers assigned to them at any one time. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, the reliefs were split. The first one I went out there, you did 28 days out there with the um, crew, that you, the other two keepers that you were assigned with. But that changed shortly afterwards uh, for continuity reasons to doing two weeks with one crew and then two weeks with another crew. It was split into what was called major and minor reliefs. Uh, the minor relief being just one of the assistant keepers changing and the, uh, the major relief having the principal keeper and the junior hand uh, changing together. The Wolf was the probably the worst lighthouse that anybody would wish to be appointed to. <laughs> mm. It was, as you quite rightly say, some some distance offshore. It's eight miles off the southwest of Cornwall. Not the one that everybody sees that when they go down to Land's End and looks out and thinks how, how wonderful and romantic it must be to, to live or work on that lighthouse with the rocks all around it. The Wolf is after the southwest and it's like a little stick sticking out of the sea because it's built on the top of a volcanic uh, outcrop, basalt something like that and so there's no rock around it whatsoever as such 
and it was it was just a jetty a landing that was uh, built to enable the um, granite blocks to be transported out there and put into position to build the tower and then for supplies to be brought out and that uh, that jetty or landing was built around the original day marker mm -hmm. which was this huge conical um, cast iron a cone that was placed on top of the rocks to act as purely what it was, a day marker. It was very much affected by the southwesterly weather. Any weather, any swell out there was amazing because the sea was um, coming straight in from America and um, unbroken swell would, would, would be quite high. It was the highest wave when I was there had been recorded off not far from it at the Seven Stones Light Vessel, which was nearby. And um, I think if I remember rightly, it was about 30 odd feet as the highest at that time. And I'm talking about the early 80s. There mm -hmm. probably have been higher ones since. And uh, in general, how did you find life at Wolf Rock? I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I did at the smalls because the mm -hmm. smalls you could get out. If there was a nice day, especially in the summertime, you could go down the dog steps onto the rocks surrounding. You could even fish. I, I, I had fished on a um, on a lovely summer's day off the smalls with, um, you know, a lure and that and caught mackerel. You couldn't do anything like that unless it was an exceptionally quiet day and get down onto the landing. And you did do that, but it was very few and far between the occasions when you could do that. It was difficult. It was the same size tower as the smalls, but it seemed to be smaller, but it wasn't. It, they were sister lighthouses, same design. I don't know how to describe it. It was the weather, I think. It was dominated by the weather and the wind and the uh, and the seas there. So the dampness was particularly bad in the wintertime. It was cold. It wasn't a place that uh, I, I, I remember with any great enthusiasm, to be quite frank. But we had our duties and our jobs to do. And uh, if you, you know, just got along with them and the other two keepers, then then everything was fine. It would, You'd get through. It was your job. And I took that approach. I would do even manage to do some painting whilst I was there, some drawing and painting. Yeah. Made a little folding table that um, tucked away out of the way and um, up in the radio room. And that gave me an outlet. There was plenty, I take plenty of books and there were books out there to read. And um, the TV signal was pretty good, which was remarkable, really. So um, it wasn't all bad. And I was there for about two and a half years, all in all. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds interesting and maybe, uh, as you said, pleasant, at least some of the time. But uh, you mentioned uh, doing some painting there. Was that the case right from the start of your, your lighthouse keeping career? Did you uh, do uh, painting at all these places? Yes, that was the real reason that I, that, well, I say the, the, one of the reasons that I joined the lighthouse service. Right. I would, going to an offshore lighthouse, like the um, the Smalls and um and, and, and the wolf, you were a bit restricted in size. You couldn't take a big easel and canvases and things like that because what you took with you had to go in, into uh, special plastic boxes that would fit in the boot of the helicopter. And they weren't particularly large. And food and um, supplies took the main priority for making up the weight load um, on, on the helicopter flight. So uh, I, I, I was all right in a lot of ways because I didn't, I, and I still don't much to this day, paint on anything larger than a four size paper and a lot of it is smaller than that I, I made up a box and i could take my equipment and my watercolor box out with me and um and it was safe in in transport and that's how i got uh, i took paper and stuff out there and that's how i got through it i take sketchbooks and do a lot of sketching drawings of the interiors of the lighthouses was one of my favorite ones i mean you take photographs but i hadn't had I got one? Yes, I just bought an SLR camera in, in, the, in the early 80s. So I did have the SLR. But prior to that, the 35mm ones weren't particularly good for taking, you know, photographs inside restricted areas like the lighthouses. So I do a lot of drawings of them, quite detailed, which I've still got. And, of course, they've all changed now with automation and, um, and all the equipment having been taken out. So... Um, you know, it's, it, that's a little project I've got on the go at the moment is to try and collate them all and put them into a into a book. And mm. um, who knows what will happen there. But yes, it was things like that that would help to uh, to pass the time. And I, I certainly enjoy doing painting. So would always take my paint box with me, literally. Yeah. And uh, wildlife, obviously, was a, one of your primary subjects yeah. as well, right? Yeah, I've always loved the birds and um, 
and migration time was was always quite interesting i remember in the summertime summer migration there was a or springtime a swallow came in and uh, spent the night in the radio room uh <laughs> sleep on the back of the chair on the, you know with his head under the under its wing so exhausted um. he must have been it'd gone in the morning <laughs> but huh. uh, it was an excellent subject for uh, for a quick sketch or two yeah, but yeah. sadly, a lot of them used to fly into the uh, in, into the structure around the uh, the optic, the lantern at night time and in foggy conditions because they were attracted by the light, and then they'd hit the um, the metalwork of the uh, helicopter pad supports, and um, that was always rather sad. But it did give one a chance to um, to draw some, make some dead studies as well, sketching. Yeah. Well, that kind of thing happened uh, a lot in the, the U.S. as well, especially with some of the taller offshore lighthouses. So uh, as far as uh, wildlife subjects, I, I've seen a number of your, your paintings and drawings. Uh, puffins are in some of them and uh, other seabirds as well, right? That's right. Well, when, when I went then to uh, an island rock lighthouse, uh, for instance, like the Lundies, well, I was appointed to the Skerries. Um, after the wolf, my second appointment, and that was off of Hollyhead, Anglesey. Mm -hmm. um, there was there was a lot of uh, small islets around it, and the seals and, um, and 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 bird life were totally different there. Nesting colonies of Arctic terns and even roseate terns there. Um, I remember seeing the um, a short-eared owl used to come out quite often, looking for mice and things like that. It wasn't very far offshore. It was only a few miles offshore. So um, it was a totally different environment, quite the opposite, in fact, Jeremy, and um, a very, very pleasant lighthouse to be stationed at. I wasn't fully stationed, not 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 um, full time to somewhere like Lundy South, for instance, but that would have been even better. In I went there a couple of times to um, to, to cover for um, for sickness when I was in the in in the pool of keepers that were used mm -hmm. uh, to fill in. And um, it was a lovely place, and it still is a lovely place to visit. If you ever get the chance to get out to Lundy on the um, on the local ship from uh, Appledore, as I think it goes from, then you should take it. It's a lovely place to visit. I would love to. So you spent a little over four years at Scary's Lighthouse, right? That's uh, right. I um, I really enjoyed the time there. It was a large dwelling for the keepers with the kitchen and um, and that. And then a tower was attached to it with an engine room. The fog signal on it was quite an interesting one. It was a, um, a diaphone, a huge, great diaphone sat on the top and all been ripped out now and replaced with these little electric ones. Um, yeah. A lot of character and, and a lot of um, atmosphere on the Scaries Lighthouse and um, a great place to be. I, I very much enjoyed the time there. And then in 87, uh, I put in for and was lucky to get, uh, as I was a single person, the summer appointment down to Europa Point Lighthouse in Gibraltar, where the keeper would go down to allow the families. This was a landlight and um, again, a totally different atmosphere, but the duties and the work were still exactly the same. But this lighthouse was on the mainland at the very tip of, um, of, of Gibraltar, Europa Point, looking out over the Straits of Gibraltar. And the three keepers that were down there with their families would take the holidays one after another. So a relieving keeper like myself would go down to um, to fill the vacancy for the period of time that those keepers were taking their holidays. And they were like the only that was the only holiday that they would get in the year, if I remember rightly. I, though I can't be too sure. They might have had rest of us keepers um, just did 28 days on, 28 days off. We didn't have any holidays. Um, designated if the duty so fell that you had to go out for a relief just before Christmas or bank holiday for instance that was that was tough you had to go out and do it and the other keeper then could get ashore and enjoy the uh, the time ashore at Christmas with his family or whatever so that was just how it was but on a land like they did get associated holidays because they lived there all the time all year round yeah <laughs> children went to local schools and um and so it was an opportunity to go down to Gibraltar for me to see see a different aspect of lighthouse keeping. Yes. Yeah, I guess that goes back to the days of the Imperial Lighthouse Service uh, with uh, Trinity House establishing lights in various parts of the world, uh, parts of the uh, the British Empire. Yes. Yeah. yeah. British but, overseas territories. 
Mm-hmm. There used to be one at the Falkland Islands. In fact, yes. I think it's been restored. I don't know if it still operates. I'm just curious, you mentioned the fog signal at, at Scary's, the diaphone horn. Uh, did you get used to that? It was an easier fog signal to get used to, in all honesty. It was also um, a gentler sound. I know it's it's got the horrible oomph when the, when the diaphone fram closes in the apparatus and the, you know, the compressed air is shut off. And it's that oomph that travels for miles across the sea that can be heard by, you know, a ship or somebody on, you know, on, on, on lookout for it in the sailing days. But um, the horn itself, you know, it, it, it wasn't quite as intense to me as the actual um, um, compressed air super typhons that um, were on the Smalls Lighthouse, for instance. I also think they were, yeah, they had super typhons at Lundy as well. Lundy South Lighthouse that I met or came across. And they were awful. I mean, just their sound. You know what it's like when a when one of your big articulated lorries comes up behind you and you're traveling perhaps a bit too slow in the, in the slow lane on, on the motorway or the highway and he starts giving you a toot on his horn. Yeah. It's enough to make anybody jump for their life, I always think. But um, you can imagine nine of those on, on the Smalls Lighthouse. There are three banks of three all going off at once and um, and seeing the compressed air coming out the, um, the the funnel part of it at the front. Oh, they were terrible. They were very effective, mine. And that's what they were there for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, definitely effective. I uh, I got to hear a diaphone horn at uh, Souter Lighthouse in England on the East Coast. Okay, uh, yes. Yeah. I was there a few years ago. That was quite if an experience. You wanted to, um, if you wanted to hear one which is still working, then go to Nash Point on your travels over there in South Wales between um, Port Hall and Barry. Easily, easily accessed on the land. And it's got they've got an amazing um, compressor there. They've got a Revol, um, which has got four cylinders in a cross configuration mm-hmm. on them and uh, for, com- for, for pumping up, compressing the air for the, uh, for the diaphone fog signal, which is on the roof uh, with its horn. Two pairs of horn, a uh, pair of horns on that one actually. Yeah, Nash Point Lighthouse, very good. That was one of the ones I went to as a supernumerary. Petrified uh-huh. me to death because the first time I had to set uh, set the fog signal going myself was in the middle of the night, and everyone was asleep. And I always felt like, well, should I be sounding it? But I couldn't see the markers, so yes, I did. And of course, then to get all the sequence in the correct order to get it working. Anyway, I had some notes written, but I never forget that experience. You just made me flash back to a job I had uh, late 80s, early 90s. I was a projectionist for a few years for a, you know what IMAX theaters are, the big movie theaters? Yes, yeah, I've been to the IMAX was, theater. We had it in a, Bristol. Yeah, I was a projectionist. It was actually called Omnimax. It was a dome theater in Boston, and you had to, uh, the uh, projector actually had a 15,000 watt xenon lamp in it and there were air it was a uh, water cooled and there are air compressors oh. that had to be be running it to turn on all this equipment so uh describing the you know activating the horn flashed yeah, me back so the to, first to those time days. when you come to do it with all the people waiting in anticipation <laughs> oh yeah and uh must have been quite a quite an event just one more story about that. Andrew Lloyd Webber came to visit us one day and Sarah Brightman, who was his, with a singer, who was his wife yeah, at the time. Yes. Uh, they were going to come to see a show and uh, tour the uh, the projection booth. And a couple of hours before they, they came, the, uh, pr- the lamp, the xenon lamp blew up, exploded inside the projector. <laughs> <laughs> we just got it cleaned up and got a new lamp in just as they were arriving. It was a, well done. It was a day I'll never forget. Anyway, so uh, you mentioned earlier you spent some time uh, in the pool. Uh, I think it was eighty-seven to ninety-two. That's almost the exact years I was a Omnimax projectionist. <laughs> um, yeah, and so what did that mean exactly? Being in the pool. Well, redundancy was um, automation was 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 coming on quite strong then, and so redundancy was an issue um, for us lighthouse keepers in those years. Uh, certainly the late 80s and into the mid-90s for me. The pool was just a shortened word for a reserve, a pool, a pool reserve of keepers who were available to go wherever was needed at the time. Um, Trinity House had stopped taking on keepers, so there weren't any supernumeraries, and a pool was created. And so when your lighthouse became 
automatic and demand um, that was the place most keepers ended up and um, at first it was it was it was great I ended up in it because the scaries was being automated in, in 87 and whilst I went down then to Gibraltar when I came back the key the, the station had basically demand was in the process of demanding so I didn't have a lighthouse to go back to so I went into the pool for about five years which was um, I found towards the end was quite difficult I enjoyed it at the beginning. I enjoyed it for the probably the first three or four years, getting a call and then um, then just dropping things and going off. But it was the fact you couldn't really plan very far in advance for anything. If there was an event coming up, a family event or something like that, um, you had to make sure that or ask on bended knee and perhaps drop a few bribes um, in order to get <laughs> the time off. You didn't really have the 28 days on, 28 days off because... You could go away for a few days at a drop of a hat, or you could be away for two weeks. In the end, it tended to depend on your attitude. And I found that uh, if you did do that, you know, complied with what they wanted, and then perhaps asked a few favours now and again, it worked quite well and it worked quite smoothly. And I ended up settling in towards the latter days of the pool into a vacant spot at St Anne's Head Lighthouse in Pembrokeshire on the entrance to Milford Haven uh, Estuary, one of the deepest harbours in, in, in the UK. They had a vacancy there, and I kept sort of saying, well, any chance of going back to St Anne's, you know, and, and they did do that. And then ultimately, they, um, they gave me a permanent appointment there, which I saw out to the end of my days, and which, which was a lovely end to the lighthouse uh, career that I had. It was uh, on, a land, on, on the mainland, Pembrokeshire National Park, um, a lot of people found it very barren and, and boring there, but there was a lovely village close by. There was some great um, bays you could go fishing from, beaches and that. It's a really nice spot, actually. But like I say, it's not everybody's cup of tea. It's a bit isolated. Yeah. It's a very old light station. I was uh, looking into it a little bit, and I think it was a uh, light was first established there in 1714. Yeah, and so that's uh, going back a long time. Yeah, looking at, at photographs, it looks like a, a be- very beautiful place, very striking cliffs. They are. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I imagine a lot of bird life. Again, it, it, was, it was on the migration route. Um, there's, a, there's, there's quite a history going back to the Second World War as well with um, aircraft flying over from Canada um, that had been built over there and then being um, used here, obviously, during the war and landing not far from Dale. There was a big bomber base up there. Well, let's say bomber base. I think it was um, Coastal Command and um, um, protecting the, um, the, the, the the sea routes up to Liverpool. Um, prior to that, I think it's always had um, a, a lot of traffic going in and out of Milford Haven. And they built the um, oil terminal and the um, refineries there. And then across at Castle Martin and just behind the, the refineries, there's um, a lot of um, army land which has been used for... Um, for exercises, which you know, access are accessible to the to the public at certain times. Pembroke itself, the, the town on the other side from Milford Haven, has got a castle which goes right back to the Edward Ed, Edward the Second days or Edward the Third. But um, yeah, the whole area is 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 quite amazing. There's some beautiful coves and beaches around um, around there, stretching down to Tenby uh, in the east, and then round St David's Head. Uh, smallest cathedral in in the UK, and then up north towards um, Fishguard and Strumble Head Lighthouse, which is where it all started for me. And St Anne's Head is where where it ended for as far as your lightkeeping yes. career. Yes. Uh, so how why did that uh, come about? Why did your lighthouse keeping career end in 1996? It was just simply Jeremy last in, first out. As your name came nearer towards the top. And, uh, you know, this you were the junior hand, junior, at least senior keeper in, you you were the next one to go. It just happened and, and that's how it was. In the end, they had uh, given me a date in May, but I, I think that um, they didn't have a lighthouse for me or work for me to do for about two months before that date. So um, I was paid off for those two months as well. Yeah, it, it was quite a change then in, in lifestyle for me. Um, a lot of the inspiration and the environment where I was living and, 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 and painting, you know, the light, the quality of the light, for one thing, was all those elements were gone. I was back living in Bristol and um, 
and things were completely different there. And and that's how it's been since uh, 96. I'm still living here in Bristol. Yeah. So all of the lighthouses uh, under Trinity House were automated and de-staffed by, was it 98, I think? Uh, was I one. think it was, yeah. North Fallen. Yeah, yeah. David Appleby, who I just interviewed, was one of yes. the last crew at North Foreland. Yeah. So before we move on and, and uh, just uh, finish by talking maybe a little bit more about your, your art career, uh, anything else that we haven't touched on about your lightkeeping career that uh, springs to mind? Any memories of storms or anything else that sticks out? The worst thing that sticks out for me was the uh, Penny lifeboat disaster when I was on the wolf. December 1981, on the 19th. So I'd been out on the wolf for a while. There was a coaster. It was brand new on its um, maiden voyage that had set out from Rotterdam, I think it was, with a load of fertiliser on it for, for southeastern Ireland. In the afternoon, the situation was quite straightforward. The, the Union Star had lost its power. Its engine stopped. And the captain had said he'd reported it. And he'd said that he would get the engine running and that um, he just wanted to let the Coast Guard know because the ship was drifting. Now, we'd had a storm go through just prior to the 19th, and um, there was still a swell running, but the wind wasn't particularly strong. However, there was another deep depression coming in that later that day. That deep depression did come in very, very rapidly, and the wind did get up, and the Coast Guards were concerned, but still the captain kept refusing to accept a tow from the um, from the local um, salvage tug that was in there. It was always, always one based around um, that corner of Land's End, um, the Wolf Rock longships and that um, in the winter times because of, of boats getting in, ships getting into problems. I think it was based at Farmer. But anyway, the captain wouldn't, um, the captain of Union Star wouldn't take a line. The, the, the company had said that uh, that he wasn't to, and he, he's tempted to get the ship going. It got pushed closer and closer to the to the shore just west of Tadardu. And the wind kept getting up. The sea was getting up and the light was starting to go. So the uh, helicopters came out from search and rescue, came out from, from the um, naval station and they tried to take uh, the crew off and whatever but they couldn't because the wind was too strong and by then the ship was getting too close to the cliffs so the only other choice then was to uh, launch the um, Penley lifeboat from Mausel which was just near to Penzance and um, that one went out to Solomon Brown with eight crew on it and it got four of the um, the passengers and um, uh, they, that was the, the I think the captain's wife and the two cousins, or two nieces, sorry, two girls, I think they got them off, and one of the crew members, and it went back for the other four then, the captain and the other three, and uh, unfortunately a huge sea came, and from what I gather, lifted the Solomon Brown up and over the um, the, the the Union Star, which was side on then, beam on to the cliffs and trapped, and uh, the, the, the lifeboat got smashed to pieces, basically, and then the ship did roll over, got rolled over onto it or into the same location shortly afterwards. Um, this all happened in the night and we could only hear the calls from the Coast Guard um, and to the captain of the lifeboat, but nothing was coming back. And in the morning, when the uh, spray and that and the daylight came, you could see the uh, Union Star's red, brand new red hull upside down. And that was, uh, and that was the last of that. Very traumatic. and. Um, disturbing night and, and tragic tragedy for the area. Um, eight local people lost their lives and, um, and the eight um, others from the ship and, and, and the captain and his, um, his wife and two nieces. Tragic, tragic tragedy. Yeah, but that, not... yeah, obviously sticks in my, my mind more than anything else. There sure. are other smaller incidents where I remember one day seeing... Um, uh, on a nice sunny day up off the Skerries, a um, motorboat launch with a speedboat type thing with two lads in it waving as that was being pushed up on the tide and with the wind um, past Hollyhead and between us on the Skerries lighthouse and the mainland. And they were waving and they'd lost their power. And in that instance, it was, it was quite a simple job to um, ring up the Coast Guard. And then the lifeboat came out quite quickly 
got a line to them and towed them back. So not all incidents like that that we saw, not that they happened or we saw them very often, ended in such tragedy as the um, Penley lifeboat one did. But um, but yeah, that was pretty bad that night. Well, that last sort of thing you, you mentioned, that's I think that's why a lot of people feel that uh, automation was is a, a bad thing in the sense of, of not having yes. uh, keepers there, uh, keeping an eye out all the time. That's right. That was our job, you see. Yeah. Always observe for the weather and make sure that the light was operating when it needed to. Mm-hmm. And then obviously you were there if, if, if anybody else was trying to send you signals or put up rockets and whatever. Of course, it's all changed now with GPS and... Um, and the accuracy of GPS, and so therefore, yes. Yeah. Well, lighthouses certainly aren't as central to navigation as they once were, although no. people would argue that they still serve a navigational role. But aside from that, do you feel that there should be people at uh, some of these light stations? Some of them, I think. But um, it's not I, – I, I don't think it would be quite so easy to get people to work on them now, such are the conditions that uh, – and the way health and the safety has changed. Yeah, I don't think it would be feasible to be to be quite frank. Such as the technology with um, and the reliance of technology with solar-powered panels generating the electricity needed to charge the batteries and that. I think the biggest downfall for lighthouses was was the uh, invention of the halogen lamp, which didn't require anywhere near the wattage to power it, and yet could still, with those huge optic and Fresnel lenses, put out a beam that could be seen, you know, 15, 20 miles away. Yeah. I mean, on the Bishop Rock, which I went to, and, and even Heartland Point, they had a biform lens of the largest order, one stacked on top of the other with three and a half thousand watt lamps in them, filament lamps. I've got one here from a time expired one, and um, and they were massive. And, and you can imagine the pair of them would be operating. It was just, it was just something else. It really was. And of course, you know, it was obsolete, really, even even in the in the early 80s when I was there. And they got soon got replaced by more efficient, smaller powered um, or smaller lamps that didn't need as much power. And then when the halogen yeah. ones came in, that was the end of it. And now you've got LEDs that are in this country and exactly. I think in your country, too, LEDs That's in a lot right. of these locations that are even require even less power and less attention. And uh, I know here are. Our Coast Guard Ace and Navigation teams might visit those offshore LED lights once a year, and uh, they That's pretty much run just, themselves. Yeah, yeah, just clean off the solar panels. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So when you left Trinity House in '96, what did you do after that? Besides I, uh, paint, obviously. But, yes, yeah. I um I took to uh, I learned with the local bus company that um were down the road from where we're living. I had a mortgage to pay, and um, my wife was just starting to do childminding from home and um we had quite a large home with the with the five children so we thought that um we would develop that more the childminding side of aspect of things and i took a local job down in the um in the bus company learned to drive a bus and was driving buses in bristol for a number of years pay for it was absolutely awful compared to what i was used to so i applied for and got various promotions until i ended up as a service manager and route manager uh, for one of the depots here in Bristol, um, that was that was an interesting job, but it didn't allow the painting as much as uh, I had been allowed to do it before, and the opportunities became fewer and fewer, far farther and farther between. I took early retirement from the bus company in 2014, and um, since then I've been painting a lot more and a lot happier as well. <laughs> uh huh. Do you uh, travel to uh, to paint to see wildlife and other subjects? I know you do a lot of uh, sort of architectural drawings and paintings as, as well. Uh, and you know, for people need to check out your uh, your artwork, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the the just the detail and both your wildlife your work and uh, the uh, buildings and uh, just whatever you whatever your subjects are, the detail is incredible. Um, Thank you very much. And they're very, very beautiful. Uh, really enjoyed looking at your art. But do you do you travel around or do you uh, mostly stay based uh, at your home at this point? I'm mostly based at home now. I don't travel around as much. I don't find it quite so easy to get around as much now. Yeah. And um, 
and I've used a lot of um, sketches from the past. Uh, recently, there's still quite a wealth of those to do. But no, I don't. I don't paint now as much as I used to do, and um, I don't get to see the subjects as much as I used to when you you know we were living amongst them, or even when I when I left the light. No, when I was um, I was moved out of West Wales and went to live near near Bradford Avon. It was quite close to a uh, canal system, the Kennet and Avon Canal. And when I was home there, there was a uh, a lot of um, inspiration on the canal scenes that um, that I found um, interesting and colourful and, and 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 good to paint. And people liked them, seemed to like them, and bought bought my pictures quite quite regularly. But mm-hmm. um, that all changed as well then. And um, just adapting to the changes, I've always been happy to belong to a, 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 an art club and then to exhibit with the art club once twice three maybe three or four times a year if we're lucky and that's yeah. what i do now that's that's basically what i do now yeah and you do uh, you do a lot of watercolors you also do uh pen and ink and uh, mm-hmm. pencil sketches is that right that's right that's right and oils now as well mm-hmm. because i'm not limited on the side and carrying stuff around i've been painting larger canvases and um yeah it's 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 still still going on i still enjoy doing it um, the detail aspect has always been there. It's something I've always enjoyed to do. But basically, it's just taking the time, and um, and um, and I enjoy that rather than the um, throwing paint a blank canvas, which is what a lot of people also enjoy doing. But that's not really my my cup of tea, so to speak. Yeah, I used yeah. to be fascinated by like the very early days of migration. And okay, so you'd have a dead skylark or a blackbird in front of you, but if you put the wings out, spread the wings out, and then before it got it started smelling too much, you've got an excellent subject there to just sit and draw. It's not the easiest of things. It's it's like um, somebody set a subject recently for weekly challenges that we did, which we have still do with our um, with, with with my with my art club that I belong to, and one of them was was the was hands and the difficulty with hands. We were asked to do a drawing of of hands being washed it was it was a fascinating subject who would Mm. think to do it but but when i got into doing it and it it really was so interesting it's um it's a bit like the architectural drawings as well part of the kennet and avon featured a couple of uh, aqueducts by john rennie you might have heard of civil engineer in this country who helped with the building of of the lighthouses in the early days certainly the Mm -hmm. bell rock and the eddystone but um (coughs) <coughs> what the design or whatever but his aqueducts you sat down there and looked at them you know and the curves the beautiful curves and the, the stonework on i mean it is it, I, I used to find it an excellent subject to, to draw i do sketches and take photographs and then work from those when i got back home and that's still been basically certainly now that i'm away from the environment that i like the best which was the sea mm-hmm. uh, that's cer- certainly the way that i work these days now so how can people see your art? Is there somewhere online they can go and look? Yes, there's, I've got a website, which is www.lighthouseart.co.uk, all one word. Here in Bristol, I've got some, some work um, in, a, in a converted lightship, and it's part of the uh, Lightship Arts Festival, which is running now until next weekend. I've got some um, work on show there and hope, to get into a gallery on a more permanent basis in another part of Bristol mm-hmm. called um, mm-hmm. North Street Gallery. But that's for the future. We're uh, speaking on March 15th. The uh, show you just mentioned at the uh, Lightship is, uh, you said it's it's uh, it's this week, right? But people won't be hearing this until later. So I think that show will be passed. But that's oh, okay. uh, but that that Lightship, is that a, it's, it's an art gallery in general? Is that right? No, it's, um, it's an ex-Trinity House light vessel. It was built back in the um, 19th century. It was built in 1885. Mm-hmm. As I believe, I was told by our uh, ALK, the Association of Lighthouse Keepers, uh, light vessel chuppy, that it's LV55. It was built in 1885 as a light vessel there in Bristol. Mm-hmm. Had a life until... Um, Trinity House commissioned it off. It was sold out of service in 1953 and then went to Porter's Head for scrap. Now, Porter's Head is near Avonmouth, which is the biggest port here in the southwest, uh, just to the uh, west of Bristol on the River Avon. 
And um, she was taken there for scrap. Uh, the lantern and all the metalwork was removed. And then it was set fire to to um, to get rid of it. And it burnt for days, but it didn't succumb. Yeah. So it was left wounded and floundered and abandoned where she lay in Porter's head. But the Cabo Cruising Club in Bristol saw the wreck and bought it for £275 pounds in 1954. That's a year after she was sold out of Trinity House Service and then worked begging and borrowing tools and materials throughout the seasons. They gradually turned her from an empty blackened shell to a usable space. And now it's based in, um, in Bathurst Basin in Bristol uh, at the John Sebastian Key. And it's their mm-hmm. clubhouse, the, cru- cool. the Cabo Cruising Club. Excellent. And they've Excellent. been kind enough now as part of their festival that they're having to allow us some space um, in the foredeck area inside um, um, for a small exhibition. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah. You think that'll be happening again, uh, maybe a, on a yearly Hopefully basis? again in the future, yeah. yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful. So anything else uh, coming up that you'd like to tell people about? Any shows or exhibits or anything? I'm looking forward to, uh, in the summertime, taking part in our annual um, open exhibition here in Bristol. That's normally um, near the RWA. There will be plenty of signs and that around for it. And usually takes part, uh, takes a place on July, end of July, August time. Mm-hmm. But um We'll have to wait and see if that can be organized. I've not heard anything about that coming off as yet. I have two final questions for you for bonus points. All right. Okay. So. I like bonus points. <laughs> okay, good. Well, you, you've you got a perfect score so far. So we'll see if you can add some bonus points. Uh, my uh, next to last question is, do you miss life at the lighthouses? Definitely. There were times, mind you, it wasn't all rosy. There were times when um, one did get fed up, like you would do in any job. But I love the work. I love the environment and I love the uh, the keepers that you work with and the Trinity House themselves were like working for a big family. As I say, the environment, the sea, that people would say, well, you must have been bored stiff, you know, but every day was different. And the storms when they came through, I still love a good storm. We live quite high up here in Bristol and uh, the wind can be quite strong. In fact, recently I started to take a few slates off the front roof so i've had to have the front roof repaired and reslated and that in order to bring that up to spec but yeah i really did miss it and it was quite difficult and i still miss the sea now jeremy like like nothing on earth but that's that's life you move on and um it's no good sort of um moaning about it so to speak my last question i think you may have already answered but i'll give you uh, a chance to uh, to add something if you want to but is there a, a favorite thing? What was your favorite thing about being a lighthouse keeper? I think the most the favorite thing I, I, I liked about being a lighthouse keeper was the summertime and the midnight to four o'clock in the morning watch. And especially if you were on one of these tower rocks like the Wolf or the Smalls or the Eddystone, whatever, the Bishop, on a nice still night when everyone was asleep and the light was going around, you could climb up onto that top of that helipad lie down on the top of the alley pad and look at the stars. And I'd never seen anything like it. The beams <laughs> would be going around underneath me so the light wasn't being polluted. And then if you look down over the side of the helipad, you could see the phosphorescence in the sea slapping against and around the rocks at the base. Wonderful. And people would pay hundreds of pounds to go down to Cornwall or wherever for a summer holiday. And here I was being paid to do that and to experience that. It was great. On the other hand, there were awful days. <laughs> I'm sure. But yeah, that was that was one of the favorite things about it. And the 28 days on and off and the fact that, you know, the way of life, I think you could say overall the way of life. It wasn't it wasn't a job as such to me. It was a way of life. And I enjoyed it. Well, that is beautiful. And I think that's a, a good place to end for now. What a what a great, great memory uh, being in the uh, the wee hours of the morning and, and seeing the stars and the phosphorescence and everything. I, I love that. Shooting the uh, stars going over bits of space junk. You see it all. <laughs> wow. That sounds like sounds like a kind of heaven to me. Well, Barry Hawkins, it's been really great talking with you. The time has flown by. We've been talking for about an hour and uh we could, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about. Maybe we can do it again sometime, but it, it's all fascinating. Uh, I love your your art and uh, to hear you uh, talk about your days as a lighthouse keeper is just uh, really, really interesting and fun. So I appreciate your time so much, Barry. Thank you. 
Thank you, Jeremy. It's been um, a bit of an anticipated wait for this <laughs> interview, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been great to meet you and see you. And who knows, we might meet again in the future. I hope so. Thank you very much. You can see some of Barry Hawkins' artwork on his website at lighthouseart.co.uk. I had a great time talking with Barry Hawkins. I see it as kind of a trilogy with the interviews I did with the English Lighthouse Keepers David Appleby and Neil Hargreaves. Thanks as always to the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its affiliates and chapters. Visit uslhs.org to learn more about the tours, the passport program, preservation grants, and everything the Society offers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider a donation to the Society to help support it. Please help spread word of this podcast on social media. If you listen through a platform that allows you to post reviews, please rate and review us. The Turkish writer Mehmet Murat Ildan once wrote, quote, Are you looking for a lighthouse? Let me give you advice. When you improve your own mind, you become your very own lighthouse, end quote. In next week's episode of Lighthearted, we'll be speaking with Jan de Boer of the Dutch Lighthouse Association. To all our faithful listeners and to our new ones, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Shine.